friends, welcome back to Unfeigned Christianity, where we seek to find culturally aware, biblically nuanced, and Jesus-embodying responses to current day issues. Today I have on the podcast Rebecca Mui and Drew Latin to discuss. We're going to be talking about gender roles, but we really just kind of scratch the surface. There's a conversation happening around the Christian world and, and really society in general in many ways around gender roles and around men and women and and you know obviously throughout history we've had the rise of feminism feminine feminism I can't even say the word and so you have complementarianism and egalitarianism kind of rise up in the debates in the Christian world and some of these terms I don't know how many of you even understand we we talk about these terms and we define them, but it's like an hour into our conversation. And so complementarianism is, listen to the episode for a fuller definition, but it's basically that men and women are different and they fulfill roles that complement each other. And specifically that men are to have the roles of authority, the roles of power and women serve and complement and assist. Whereas egalitarianism is more the concept that they are equal and they are supposed to have equal power. And so uh, a lady could fill a role of authority or power or a man could fill a role of authority or power. And in, in marriage and relationships like that, there should be no, they should have equal power. These are hyper deduced or reduced uh, definitions of these terms, but just you're going to hear those terms a lot. <laughs> kind of an hour into it we're like oh we should define these terms um so just to give you a little bit of a context so you understand another term we talk about is patriarchy which is this notion that men have all authority and decision making power in society and culture and that women are not even their own like men have ownership over women um you'll hear that term brought up a little bit in hierarchy also the concept that there's somebody in power and authority up on top and it's the power is then tiered out to all the lay people eventually but you might have bishops that are you know not the pope but you have bishops who have more power than lay people but they're not the pope you know that concept is hierarchy we're discussing this because there is a sense in which the way christians view these roles, how men and women are to function in home, in the church, in society, that doesn't seem to fully embody the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus. And there's so, so the common debates are between complementarianism and egalitarianism. But the three of us, and there's others out there, we're, we're not unique in this, but we're uncomfortable with kind of the extreme not even extreme, but just the emphasis of these two terms and these two camps seems to still be missing something. If it's all about who gets the power, and so egalitarianism is like, well, women should get more power. We still seem to be missing something from what we see in, in the teachings of Jesus and in scripture. And definitely complementarianism, where man has power and women are, are merely just to assist, that doesn't fit the teachings of Jesus either. And so we're, we're kind of opening 
a can of worms. We're, we're peeling off the first layer. And one thing all three of us kind of have hesitation about is, is that we, <laughs> we don't want to be called liberal. And that gets kind of thrown around flippantly. I, I do a lot of writing and, and I, I challenge us in things in ways that are kind of jarring and unique. And, and so I get called liberal often and I feel, I can feel misunderstood in that because no, I'm not. You know, I, I don't, just because I believe in racial justice doesn't mean I believe that people attracted to same sex to the same sex should be free to be marry each other. Um, you know, a lot of people will map or, or that I doubt the divinity question, the divinity of Jesus or something like, no, like we have these ways of boxing in when, when somebody expresses a belief or a perspective and then we just kind of throw oh progressive Christianity on them or something. And that's not, at all where we're coming from we're wanting to to find a more faithful expression of discipleship to jesus from what he said and what he lived than what we're seeing in in the church today in the world definitely in the world like we're not we're not questioning this because the world is questioning this and we're wanting to be more appealing to the world because the world lacks like they they're basically flipping it and now, you know, where they have this abusive view of power and they're just spreading that to different people rather than learning like, what does Jesus say about power? And a lot of this conversation about power overlaps with some of the work and stuff I've done on conversations about race and, and looking at CRT. And it's kind of this whole thing that I, wrestle with it's like i didn't really want to address crt because i think that distracts from the conversations we actually need to have because crt is still a human theory i i don't think we need to condemn it they're grappling with a real thing but it's still a human theory and our goal ought to be how do we embody jesus as it relates to various ethnicities minority groups whether that's your just kind of your historical background or whether it's your ethnic background minority groups in terms of women and and so you might say how are women a minority group like aren't there more women in the world than men but to this day historically and in government and even in church women don't have a lot of voice or power space to to share i mean yeah I just said women don't like definitively as, as though that's like a declarative reality. Like obviously <laughs> we all know that there are churches where there are women preachers and pastors and so forth. I'm just saying at the broad level scope of things, marginalized is probably a better word. Now that I'm thinking through this, I said minority, like a marginalized, they're kind of cornered out. Men have the decision-making process and so forth. And the, the conversation, we don't really want, the three of us, we don't want the conversation so much to center around how, how you get women to have more power. Because we think that's actually the wrong question to be asking. And so I invite you, I'm excited to share this conversation. It was really good. We had an hour, hour and a half conversation. And I didn't have any specific questions that I wanted for the free version and some for the Patreon version. Basically, I just shortened it so that for the free version, we have about an hour of conversation. And if you want the full expanded version, 
then you can become a member and get that and, and you'll get the full conversation. But even in the hour and a half, we're just like scratching the surface of this conversation around power and what it looks like to follow Jesus, to, to be cruciformed in our ways of relating to each other, in our ways of interacting as community and how we interact with society even. There is, there is a question that Drew asked Rebecca about uh, how, like, the, with the early Anabaptists, Menno Simons, like, would they have had women involved in, in leadership of the church and so forth? And so that's, that's kind of a specific question I am leaving for the Patreon members. But in general, this is just a really good, robust kind of initial opening of the can of worms. Or maybe that's not a good way to think about it, but like, taking off the first layer of conversation as we look at what does it mean to embody Jesus in gender differences, in in our ways of relating, and, and in the different positions we're going to find ourselves in, whether that be society, familial, or church. So I hope you find it helpful as you think about these things and maybe you're processing this as well i hope it can be a meaningful part or tool of discovering more of god's word and discovering more of the picture of jesus joined by Rebecca and Drew. I was going to say your last name, Rebecca, but um, Christopher and I have had arguments over, I think he's even messaged you to to solve our arguments over how to pronounce your last name. So I'll let you pronounce your own last it's name. Mui. Mui. It's like one syllable. Mui. Mui. Like, I'm you know, positive like in Spanish, I, yeah. M-U-Y. <laughs> M-U- muy, like muy bien. Yes, yeah. there you go. Muy bien. Muy. Muy. Rebecca Muy and Drew Latin. Drew has been on the podcast before, so we won't introduce him. <laughs> yeah, and my name, my name no, does I'm not kidding. technically have the unvoiced glottal stop, but that's how I say it, so. <laughs> really? How, how, how should it technically be? Oh, no, I'm, yeah. In, in in American English, You're, it's Latin is fine, but Latin, I guess, would be more betterer. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> well, my my last name, I believe, is originally German, so it's probably supposed to be like Wittmer. Wittmer. <laughs> we have to we have to stick to that now that now that you've done it once. <laughs> Thank you for having us on, Mister Wittmer or Herr Wittmer. It's good to be here. <laughs> Hair of it. Oh man, that. What does that mean? For like some reason, Nazi I get now. like, uh, <laughs> yeah, I get Nazi vibes. But <laughs> I just read the or um, finished reading. Actually, listened to it. Um, the rise and the fall of the Third Reich, and heard a lot of hair of this. So I think Nazi. Whenever I hear that. <laughs> so we are um, on here this evening 
to discuss gender roles, I guess. Gender roles, way of relating with each other, doing ministry as a community, something like that. But um, Rebecca, why don't you... I'm literally going to skip Drew because I just had him on like two or three episodes ago. <laughs> Drew's a pastor from the Midwest. He he pastors a family. He ra- I mean, he, <laughs> he pastors a church. He raises a family. Um, he's white. He's middle class. <laughs> middle aged. Uh, maybe some Middle aged. <laughs> hey. Teach, teach us middle school. <laughs> yes. I am. Um, I am you the are. Midwest. Bland lives in the Midwest. <laughs> Host that Jesus podcast. Um, in theory. In theory. Is currently out of town. So we are filling his evening um, as he spends time away from his family due to a conference. So welcome, Drew. <laughs> Thank you. No, that's way too much introduction. Let's have Rebecca talk now. So we we went from skipping Drew to to introducing everybody. Um, Rebecca, you are you are new to the podcast, but you're not new to um, not new to the podcast. I have I don't know I I don't do it on every podcast, but I I like to mention that we uh, Unfeigned Christianity networks with a couple different groups one is the uh <laughs> restorative faith i forget the groups that network with um which restorative faith actually hasn't done a whole lot in the last couple of years but another one is the as you say that kingdom podcast kingdom outpost the podcast kingdom network. outpost podcast network there we go and rebecca's kind of the would you say the content creator manager behind that yeah, I'm the the editor sort of editor. <laughs> That's just a fancy title. <laughs> we don't we don't believe in hierarchies. <laughs> Who says editor in chief is a hierarchy? Well, can ask it's the a... chief in there, but we oh, call yeah, Aaron the sure. administrator, and Drew is kind of the pastoral service yeah. pastoral I'm the, advisor. I'm the and... cuddly middle class mascot. <laughs> You, um, Rebecca, you're, you're, I, I have actually never heard your story of like how you got into an American Anabaptist circles, but I know that somehow you have, uh, the story I've heard is that you were studying cause you're from Malaysia. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. You were studying, learning about Anabaptists. And then is that kind of around the time GTO moved next door or something and you got to know? people that way is that accurate i don't know i don't even know where i heard that but yeah i'm um i had already made a couple of different friends online especially um rosanna brubaker who works with life ring ministries and they do abuse advocacy and she was very interested in like introducing me to different books and i got to know um the there's a group called kingdom fellowship and support group mm, mm-hmm. so i had known folks um online for quite a while and then yes i did meet, meet some mennonites in person in in malaysia um i think as far i didn't even remember this but i apparently was reading harold bender since i was a, like a teenager 
maybe 18 or so, I'd come across some of that while reading Bonhoeffer. (laughs) As you do. And it's very weird. I I randomly wrote down in my journal, like, yeah, I think I'm an Anabaptist. And then just left it at that for a couple of years. But... (laughs) When, 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 like, 2016 um, came around, and I kind of saw, like, Christians I was following really get into the whole political thing, the whole nationalism thing. There was something about it that didn't, didn't seem right. And there was, there was, like, growing realization of a lot of, like, abuse and fundamentalism in the different circles that I was uh, exposed to. And in a sense, I was kind of like, you can say deconstructing, searching, or like rethinking a lot of things. And it took me a couple of years. And then when I found one of the Anabaptist groups online, and then the first thing they said was that you have to agree with the Dardrick Confession and in the separation of kingdoms to belong to that group. And then when I read the the description of what the two-kingdom theology is, then I was like, exactly, this is it. This is, this is the thing that makes sense in a Christian world where so many Christians are comp- compromising hmm. to be allied with power mm-hmm. and with politics. And they're losing their witness and they're, and they're dragging Jesus's name through the mud. And, and so that was like, finally, I found something that I didn't realize I already had found a long time before that articulated those questions. And then to find that there were many Anabaptists who are in um, advocacy and who were uh, faithful, conservative Bible-believing Christians, not just people who are, like, deconstructed and left the faith and were just, like, out to... That, that kind of gives you, like, a community. It gives you... Gave me a sense of, like, direction that these are people who shared my values and who cared... Who cared deeply about their faith. hmm Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. You... You... I, I don't even remember where I started seeing you show up on the scene so i'm not even gonna try to remember <laughs> i just Probably it would have... <laughs> go for it um titus titus kiffer wanted to get me on that jesus podcast and he was the one who kind of got me started studying colonialism because he was like i kind of want to talk about this in the podcast but i didn't know anything <laughs> about it and so i had to go and do a ton of research and then i found it and like there is so much here there is Interesting. so yeah. many, there are so many things we're not talking about and in yeah. relation to two kingdom theology. Yeah. Yeah. And I've enjoyed following you. you um, Twitter for me has been, I know some people, Oh, we just lost Drew. Um, so we'll go on talking without him. Some people have bad experiences with Twitter as well. Like Facebook has been one that's not always a pleasant experience, but Twitter, I enjoy finding journalists or like experts in a field and, and tracking. Cause they'll, they'll do threads on like, there's a couple of historians I follow who will do random threads on whatever area of history they're studying at the time. And I've noticed you do that as well. So 
um, some of what you're studying, you'll you'll share on Twitter, and I enjoy following along in that regard. You are you currently you're stateside. You're in Virginia, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Attending Virginia Tech. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And working uh, on. Go for PhD it. PhD in social uh, interdisciplinary social sciences. Yeah. Yeah. So far above and beyond anything that that I've uh, been educated in. So, <laughs> are you currently uh, <laughs> in the PhD program, or are you still doing under undergrad undergraduate stuff? Is that what it's called? Yes. Oh, so this yeah. is a PhD program that you it's it's shorter than most, not like most American programs that can go on forever. This has a it's finite, which is why I like it. You go in with a master's and you're expected to finish on time in four years. Okay. Yeah. You were telling before we hit record here, you were telling me a little bit about it. Um you're doing your or at least a current project you're working on has to do with Anabaptism in Empire? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, I have my... Let me just show you some, all my keywords that I just outlined in a huge notice board. Oh, wow. The, yeah. <laughs> the, the study is about two-kingdom theology. I mean, if you take two-kingdom theology to, to at, at its face value and what early Anabaptists said about it, it's like... Uh, Constantine is a no-go. The church should not be allied with political power. If you take that idea and you take everything that the Anabaptists stood for um, and you kind of look at the world and look at Christianity today, there are a lot of dots that can be connected quite easily, but they're not being connected. And it makes a lot of sense. Like if Christ- if Christians were never supposed to take up the sword, then they were not supposed to take the sword and go to other countries and steal land and mm-hmm. and enslave people. Like it, nonviolence and 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 the rejection of the kind of church state thing that like Christendom that became imperial Christendom. Um, there's a lot of critique and there's a lot of I think rethinking of a lot of the assumptions that we think are in, integral to say protestant evangelical christianity so most of the conversations that i'm having on twitter are with people who are thinking about these topics in evangelical context whereas for me um on other platforms facebook it's like having these conversations in anabaptist context so it's really mm-hmm. fun there's like a different side to it, but the core or even in academic settings, people are really interested. Like it's not at all for me. It's not a hostile environment. People say like, oh, it's so hard to be a Christian. Well, that's not really the case. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I'm finding people are really excited to have these conversations. Interesting. Yeah, that's it that sounds like a fascinating degree but even the, the specifically that project um anabaptism and empire and maybe we'll just uh leap <laughs> from that into our topic we're talking about gender roles and i think sometimes i know i did not was not aware of how much even our view of gender roles has been shaped by empire and by and even um like biblical teaching on gender roles or what might look like 
gender roles. I think of, of some of Paul's passages on marriage and so forth. They're set within a context of empire and trying to help the, the followers of Jesus navigate how to function and how to relate as, as a totally new humanity and a, a new community in the context of empire that has a very stringent view of men and women's roles. Um, so maybe I'll just, just to kind of open up the, the bag of worms and, and we can kind of go wherever here with it, but what, what would you guys say is, so we're kind of starting, I guess, against the canvas of this, unsettledness with how gender roles are in some of our circles. And obviously I'm coming from a, what is called conservative Anabaptist circles. That's kind of hard to define or hard to pin down like what all that means, but to a very, usually very heavy complementarian view of gender roles. But my specific context would even like when it comes to how women function in the church and in the ministry of the church, there would be complementarian churches that have more freedom for women to use their gifts and so forth than what the churches I grew up in would be uh, familiar with. So it's not, so there's kind of this added, there's complementarianism, but then there's also this added view of how men and women should function that seems to transcend just complementarianism. So Maybe we could open up or over the course of our conversation, both kind of or all all three of us share like what background we're coming from. But there's a, a general sense of unsettledness that like, you know, I'm not sure our view of gender gender roles is entirely right. Like are women supposed to just submit to men and men make the decisions in marriage or in church or what it like men always have, is that what it means to be head is to make the decisions. Um, and so I guess the question I just to open us up is like, what, what are the problematic things about the narrative of gender roles in the church uh, today? Or, or what are some of the, yeah, that's really broad and intentionally broad. Like we can kind of take it whatever way i think it's interesting i that you framed it as like it doesn't I, if i was gonna put it in my own words what you're saying in your observation is it doesn't always seem to work like women are just supposed to like mindlessly submit do they have equal standing with god are we are they equal uh heirs of the kingdom with men why do they need to be mm. sidelined? What I grew up hearing was we just follow the Bible. <laughs> like, even if it doesn't make sense, there's almost a sense in which if I'm asked to do something that doesn't make sense from scripture, there's actually additional virtue applied to following a command that doesn't make sense. It's, you know, kind of like Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland, where the, the queen of hearts says, you know, I've believed as many as, you know, 17 things before, um, 17 insane things before breakfast or something like that. And I actually resonate with some of that. It doesn't make sense from the framing of this world's powers to 
love your enemies. But I think I think the challenge that I started wrestling with was not that, hey, these radical feminists and these, you know, liberal, you know, doctoral students are um, telling me that the church hates women. It's it doesn't even make sense within Jesus upside down kingdom ethic, the way we end up treating women. So so to shift that framing to not saying uh, I want to be accepted by the world around me and I want the world to think that I'm like some woke, woke, you know, hip feminist. It's not that. Instead, mm-hmm. I'm coming and saying, wait, is the way the church, my church, my background, my teaching <laughs> has perceived women, does that fit with what Jesus teaches about kingdom, about power, about hierarchy? Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned your background, Asher, and just looking at very specifically the influence of, and I'm bringing a big word here, fundamentalism. Fundamentalism in evangelical um, theology coming from Protestant roots um, has had an influence on Anabaptist circles, but it's it's like trying to... It's like trying, it's it's a merging of two things with completely different epistemologies, different as in different mm-hmm. ways of thinking, completely different values. And you see the contrast in the Reformation era between the reformers um, who talked about gewalt, power, authority, everything revolved around top-down power for these people. And they sincerely for and in, in, in con- consistently with what had been taught before, they very sincerely believed that women were not made in the image of God, and that women were of lesser intelligence. Aristotle would say lesser soul, like a lower tier of soul, just like enslaved people were. Um, and that kind of ideology carried on and, and took on like a you can think of the the reformers as being like very stringent fundamentalists. I think it is um, Beth Ellison Barr talks about like the medieval era where there was like there were, there were women who were engaged in like writing in in spiritual different different practices of Christianity and, and spiritual practices. And then when the reformers came, they literally said, "You can only the the Luther would say that you should." I think was like women should should be in the home like a nail is nailed into the wall of home, and they really brought in this strong emphasis, and then take it down a couple of centuries. We have the twentieth century and the rise of Christian fundamentalism, and this was happening in a world where the attitudes towards women are changing, and nobody today are going to defend. Like nobody, no, no complementarian today is going to say like the way that the Victorians thought about women, that they were physically weak. And if they use their brains too much, you know, they're going to go hysterical and they just have to be very, they have, they have to be very docile and un- unexcited and, and different things that they used to believe about women, the way that the legal system treated women. So there were changes during that time. The changes were very discomforting. Um, and 
And so fundamentalism arose, and there's a there's a history book called uh, Fundamentalists and Gender, I think, by Margaret Bindrov. And so fundamentalism came in the Anabaptists in the early 20th century in the General Conference, and then the conservative Mennonites in sort of the mid 20th century really took in a lot of Protestant fundamentalism. And so there came, there came to be like, a, it's like oil and water. It doesn't quite mix it. It's not consistent with Anabaptist values. But it, it there was like, there, there was a, there was a mixing of cultural values. Um, and that's kind of what is present today. And you'll see that those groups that maybe draw on the uh, Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood or who signed the Danvers Statement, not to name any uh, conferences specifically, but those who have drawn a lot from the evangelical world are also drawing from basically magisterial Protestantism, drawing from um, a view of power and politics uh, that are very closely intertwined with a view of gender. And as you say, it does come back to empire. Um, in this case, American empire. Amer um, the Just the way that, that we think about gender. We read the Bible. We look at Titus 2, where we're actually we're reading into Titus 2 or Proverbs 31, more of American European views of femininity and domesticity that arose in context of empire. Domesticity, as we understand it, that's like, that's idealized, like in the trad wife movement. There's a reason why the far right movement and the trad wife movement are very much intertwined. It's because that view of womanhood was necessarily part of the building of American empire and the spreading, the manifest destiny. And there needed to be this role for women that was essential to the manifest destiny. But anyway, what was I saying? Uh, so you will see in contemporary evangelical fundamentalism, uh, a very, the, when there is a strong emphasis on this, on a very specific imperial creation of what gender is, that has many roots in Roman and Mesopotamian imperialism. Uh, where you will see that, you will see a lot of Christian nationalism. Theologians like Wayne Grudem, uh, I wouldn't even call him a theologian, uh, Doug Wilson, these people that are actively promoting uh, what they call biblical patriarchy or sometimes they call it complementarianism, they are also promoting a, a Christianity that's militant, that's imperial, that's about political power, because that's their view of what masculinity is. And they reframe Jesus to be more like John Wayne. Mm. <laughs> to, um, there's a lot of writing on this out there currently, a lot of discussions that one thing they're lacking I think perhaps is going back to maybe where the Anabaptists are coming from which is that instead of Gavalt instead of power and authority and, and top down the three estates uh, being central to what being a Christian is the Anabaptists said Gavalt Losekait which is like powerlessness forcelessness nonviolence in society I think that 
provides a huge, opens up the door to deeper understandings and rethinking. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I, the reason I chose Rebecca and Drew for our audience here um, to be on, I actually chose Rebecca and then she was like, Hey, we, we should have Drew join us. And cause I didn't want to have Drew on so close <laughs> to when he was I on before. That. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> um, no, it was a great suggestion. But uh, the reason, the reason she chose Drew is just cause Drew is reevaluating. I am somewhat averse to the word deconstruction because <laughs> um, I like, there are so many terms today that trigger things for people. And I want to have conversations around the issues without getting hung, hung up over the triggers. And Drew, Drew is a pastor. And so he has the, the pastoral perspective while also wrestling through, you know, obviously um, what he just shared a little bit ago, but um, having heard some witnessed and heard personally, like some of his um, ponderings and, and evaluations of men and women's roles. And, and so that gives a roundedness to this conversation that, uh, like you said, Rebecca, there is a lot out there about this topic. It's a trendy topic. There's no way to deny it. It's a trendy topic to discuss. There's, there's a reason I'm wanting to discuss it on my podcast. It's something, it's a conversation that we're having all over the place. Like at some level, you may not have it with a new group of friends, but at some level you're probably over some dinner or something going to discuss gender roles in the Christian world in America today. Um, I, 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 the reason I wanted Rebecca on is because I've really, she's been sharing some of what she's studying with um, the kingdom outpost. They've been diving into different topics. And one of them is gender roles, uh, men and women's roles in marriage. And she's been writing on that, doing some study on it. And I appreciate her bringing that, the two kingdom theology, the cruciform theology into a view of gender roles and kind of deconstructing to use that word our our view of power in general mm -hmm. because a lot it like one of the things i have reservation about is some of the authors and you alluded to this rebecca um who write on this do seem to still sort of miss and i, I want to be careful because they've obviously done a lot more study than I have on this. I have not done a deep dive. Definitely haven't written a book on this. I, I am in the middle of Bible college. And so I'm observing all kinds of things as I study the Bible. So I'm studying the Bible. What is Genesis all about? What is Exodus all about? Like, that's what the study is. But I'm observing all these things. And one of the things I observe in the New Testament is that there's women involved in ministry and like playing key roles in ministry more than what the churches I grew up in. So I'm looking at scripture and realize, having that confrontation, like my view of gender roles in ministry is different. And then even like when you get into Ephesians 5 is always kind of a fun one. Like when you when you get into what 
um, Paul is saying there and, and you discover that like five, I think it's like verse 18 through 23 or 22 is all one sentence. Like it's not in the Greek, it's not split up like we have it so that it looks like there's a distinct difference in, in the, uh, like what Paul is addressing, like he pauses and now he's talking to women about submitting to, to wives. Like actually textually, it looks like Paul is having a conversation about submitting to one another in general. And he, he's fleshes out what that's going to look like for a woman in her relationship with her husband. And what's that, what that's going to look like for a husband in his relationship with her, his wife, but even more like there's way more in that passage spoken and challenging the men than the women. And the women is almost like this side comment. And yet um, there's, I won't name the book. <laughs> there's a very famous book that the whole premise of it is centered around like the, the, the ending of that passage in, in Ephesians five, that is kind of a side. And so just like, for me, it's just been like wrestling through discovering exegetically how we have manipulated some of these texts or, or maybe, maybe just misunderstood. Like translation is a hard work and, and you're going to have to figure out how to translate into English to try to get as close as possible to what it's saying in Greek. And, um, and so like, I won't just, um, assume that people are being nefarious in the way they translate it and then how we end up reading it in English. Like there's some very reasonable explanations why these different understanding of texts happen, but that's my, what has caused me to reevaluate this conversation or this, this issue. And I lost my train of thought why I went down that road. <laughs> but I think I was talking about like some of the other authors in who who write about this. It it can feel sometimes like they they are react they are reacting. I I I ca I'm careful to say like they're reacting to something. It's okay to react to things. And we shouldn't just like shut somebody down just cuz they're reacting cuz there's there are things worth reacting to and and because somebody's reacting doesn't mean that's a whatever they conclude is wrong simply because it was out of reaction but sometimes it feels like they're reacting to a a secular view of power as being solely for men and end up like trying to make it possible for women to have that same view of power rather than like deconstructing like how does Jesus actually talk about power and what are disciples of Jesus called to in relation to power and that's what I've appreciated um, Rebecca some of the stuff you brought out is it, it feels like a little more holistic deconstruction of gender roles <laughs> yeah I wanted to add that like back my background is I come from um, an environment in a very different culture, but where Christian fundamentalism was making quite 
like making inroads because that's how it kind of spreads right from America to the rest of the world and so we were having a lot of things like authority teachings um, Bill Gothard Michael and Debbie Pearl created the bees help me um, so I was exposed to that um, Nancy Campbell's Above Ruby's magazine the whole kind of like biblical womanhood movement I was involved in that for uh, my entire like teenage life and it's kind of like when you're involved in it, it it sounds very biblical I would have kept many of the same assumptions even when I thought that I had walked away and deconstructed and rethought things and I felt like there was so much more to the conversation to be had but I still had like even just a year or two ago I would have been absolutely like flat out like yeah women should be pastors um that submission is a good thing and and even now like the point of the i think people the people easily shoehorn you into um into a straw man position because that is what evangelical fundamentalism has been doing for the past hundred years which is that anything that you just immediately put a stamp on that's this horrific thing called feminism that's how it's been been done for the past hundred years. Um, you just stamp on sort of like, oh, they're just rebellious. They don't want to obey God. They're just being progressive people who throw out scripture. And so in this study, I started it from the perspective of being quite conservative in the way that I thought about these issues. And then I went and read it. And then I read the Greek and I looked at the context in the first century and what Ephesians 5 is really saying versus what we assume it's saying because we think we're just reading the Bible, but we're reading it through the lens of everything that we've grown up with and the assumptions that are baked into it. Ephesians, I believe that we can take every word of scripture seriously sort of like in the conrad grebel sense of like every you know the scriptures me like written um like the word of god is to be obeyed that's what conrad grebel kind of like said so like that kind of like anabaptist seriousness about every word of scripture you can weigh and take every single word of it seriously deeply meaningfully with with the with the value that if Christ if this is what Christ wants this is what we're going to do because he's called us to take up the cross no matter what the cost you can take all of that and it and 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 take that seriously and like the cruciform view which is to take Christ on the cross as being the central benchmark of what it is to be a Christian and yeah, that, that's where I'm coming from um, in this study. And then rediscovering things like just the word submission. We have read so much more into it than what uh, it means. And one point, just out of like, just throwing it out there, when, we, when Christians, complementarians say submission, what they really mean is obeisance. What they're saying is, Submission in, is a woman treating a man, a pastor, every man out there, according to John Piper, with a sense of like, I'm a woman, I'm down here, you're a man, you're up there. And it's, it's sort of like making him feel 
in charge and, and very clearly in everything that you do, making a man feel like he's the one in charge and he's you're the underling, just kind of like. So when John Piper says a woman should be careful about be as impersonal and indirect as possible, even when you're giving traffic directions, you kind of have to be apologetic about the fact that you have this information and he doesn't. It's so that he feels powerful. He feels like man is up there and woman is down there. That's literally what um, the, that, say, Debbie Pearl says, like, you have to revere your husband the way you would revere God. And everything, like, obeying your husband is obeying God. And so, like, there, uh, Mirabel Morgan wrote that you have to uh i think she uses the word worship you have to like there there is an extent of like it's obeisance it's not they're not talking about biblical submission in the new testament sense biblical headship in the new testament sense they're really adding a lot on to it loading that word with something that's completely different from what's intended in ephesians 5 Hey friends, this podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Dwell app. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Dwell audio Bible app, but this app is phenomenal. It, it's changed my life in several different ways. As a Bible college student, I do tremendous amounts of Bible reading throughout the semester, more than I normally do. And I'm not a fast reader. And so one of the ways that I have been able to keep on top of the Bible reading is through the Dwell app. One of, one of the things I really like about it is there's very meditative, reflective music played in the background of the reader. So it's not dramatized. Some, some audio Bible apps are dra dramatized and that's a little, I don't know, not my cup of tea. But it's a very calming and just peaceful way of having the Bible read to you. There's also, there's at least 15, I think there's close to 30 by now, different voices that you can choose from. There's many different translations you can choose from. For the ESV, I think there's maybe two or three voices, if that makes sense. But there's over 15 voices for sure. And so you can have a female voice, you can have a male voice, you can have a British accent, you can have an American accent, you can have a Canadian accent or a... Well, I like the British accent, so I listen to the Bible in the British accent, and it's it's been a really good way to keep on top of my homework, but also I have found sometimes I'll be listening to audio Bible as I commute someplace or as I'm doing some other work, or even in the morning. Sometimes it's hard to wake up, you're tired, and to sit down and read, it literally feels like an intellectual exercise. You're just... It's like school, like starting your day with school. And I love learning things, but I'm not like, I don't do well at starting my day with school. And so when you wake up and you're tired, but you want you want to meditate on the word of God to just put in my Air, AirPods and listen to the Dwell app is an incredible way to start my morning, just in peaceful worship, meditation. I hear things differently when I hear it being read than when I read it. I personally think you should read and hear it both, but that's one thing I like about audio Bible is different things stick out that didn't stand out before. I'll listen to it as I'm going on a run or something, and I can't say enough good about the Dwell app. And so if you would like to take your meditation, 
your Bible reading to another level. You can also, if you're not able to sleep at night, you can put in your AirPods and, and listen to the scripture being read and fall asleep that way. I've used that at times as well. But you can start for free. There's a link in the description below, or you can go ahead and purchase the the annual plan, which I have, and it's to me it's very much worth it. Just in the way, a couple things: the way it helps me uh, meditate and kind of a fresh view, a fresh experience with scripture, and then also the way it helps me keep on top of my homework. It's been very helpful for me. It makes women like they literally books like created to be self-made or fascinating womanhood, literally teach women to be passive aggressive and just yeah. be like really nice, but actually trying to tell you know like be as yeah. indirect as possible, which is stupid because it's bad communication and that and this, nowhere yeah. taught in scripture. Drew has and something to is, say clearly. Well, well, this is such a good example: the teaching women to be passive aggressive because. If you're being passive aggressive, what you're doing is you're saying, I still need to wield power. And so if you if people are kind of offended or turned off by this idea of deconstruction, gender deconstructing gender roles, it's actually a much bigger project than that. It's deconstructing authority structures more broadly. And and frankly, like I would still consider myself and Rebecca and I have conversation about this uh, approximately ever every, you know, every 17.3 days. I would still consider myself to be complementarian when it comes to church roles. Um, I'm not totally comfortable with that, but that's what I see in scripture at this point broadly. But, but what I, what I'm saying is that we haven't gone far enough in looking at the kingdom ethic of saying the, the leaders shall be the servant among you. I'm washing your feet. And and so, of course, and I remember reading the same books growing up and hearing the same messages, um, teaching women point by point, this is how you make a godly appeal. No, wives, you have to obey your husband. But if you can frame it as I have a check in my spirit, then husbands, you need to listen. And it's this whole who wields the authority, who wields the power that is really fundamentally outside the ethic of the kingdom now the the brilliance of of paul's exegesis of kingdom ethics the brilliance of of paul's pastoral counsel pastoral application of what jesus teaches is that he recognizes there are power structures in the world and so when you look at a passage like ephesians 4 or colossians 3 that does say wives submit to your husbands you see it's in the context of this household code where Paul is using the same kind of lecture format, if you will, of Aristotle or some of the philosophers of the day where you give instructions to the head of the household. But the crazy thing is that Paul actually addresses wives. He addresses children. He addresses slaves. He treats them as if they're part of the kingdom. He treats them as if they have a voice. And so even though it's it's hard to unwind and I don't have answers to all the questions, um, like I have answers about some of the texts that I'm still lost in, mm -hmm. that I still don't have answers to. But um, you have questions about that, the texts. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I have questions about the texts that I'm not getting answers to that I'm totally comfortable with. I am comfortable with 
backing up and saying, well, what does Jesus say? And can I fit Paul into that? And then I'm getting answers. And then I'm realizing that this whole discussion of when is it okay for a wife to um, tell her husband she has a bad feeling about this and how is she supposed to couch that? That's just not how Jesus would want us to approach things. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And kind of to your point, Drew, uh, something you said early on, like it's a bigger discussion than deconstructing gender roles. Like I, I am probably more, and I wanted to pause too and kind of define, cause I'm not sure how familiar everybody is with some of these terms mm. and I don't want people to feel lost, but I'll say this quick and then, and then we'll define them. Um, I'm probably more like open to egalitarianism if it's in a, than my wife is like I I um she she like it's not I don't know she should be a part of this conversation <laughs> before before I put words in her mouth um like she she definitely resonates with some of the frustrations or the you know if if a wife is only good for making baked goods and like taking care of a house, like and babies that, yeah. And having babies like that kind of frustration, but then she also like really re- wrestles with, there's like this push for every woman to have a side, ho- a side, um, what do you call it? A side gig, a side hustle. And, um, and like, she, she really enjoys being a mother. She really enjoys, uh, doing, household things and like is it wrong is it okay to to enjoy that or like is she you know oh <laughs> um, i'm getting close to putting things in her mouth so i'll i'll stop my point is that i in in word and in writing like i want my wife to speak to speak into me like it, to me it actually feels respectful if she has a concern about something we're about to do or direction we're heading or something like for her to just confront me about that, you know, to talk about that, like that feels really meaningful and respectful, but that's, that's actually been hard to live out. Like I have a, I have a view of, I don't know if it's making decisions or um, because like sometimes we'll, we'll get into conflict i can sense something's boiling up in her and and then i like confront it harshly and then and then it comes out like what she's been wrestling with and then i'm like why didn't you just say that earlier on and <laughs> and she said well i tried to you know a number of different times and and i can so easily kind of shut it down and that's been a work of deconstructing that's a lot harder for me is to and that that's that's broader than just like how I relate to women. I think it's as a, like the roles I've filled in life, the um, having a final voice has, has been normative and like modeling, like a posture in relationships and working with people where people are, are free to speak into that. And, and where I'll, I'll not just like, blow it by but actually lean into it and listen to it in a gentle way like i don't know if that is what all you meant drew but um i do think that it is a much bigger 
process than just like what men and women, because I don't know, like my wife, I don't think I'm putting words in her mouth to say she doesn't want to make all the decisions for our family, but she wants to know that her voice is heard and cared for. And, and having someone's voice heard and cared for is more than just like saying, I care about your voice. <laughs> you know, it's like how, yeah. how I respond. Yeah. And so I'm going to say this and, and hope that Rebecca has a, a spicy pushback. Um, I want, I want to acknowledge that in society, in our relationships, there will generally be hierarchies. Somebody generally will have the final say in a situation. At some point in a meeting, somebody has to say, okay, let's do this. And, and that's a, a reality in my mind where we can't just sit and, and ruminate forever. Um, and in many cases, I think whether it's society or something about like how men and women tend to be made up biologically or whatever, it's often the case more often than not that men will take a leadership role rather than women. And that tendency um, is reinforced and emphasized and made the law of the land in most societies. And so um, <clears throat> if I find myself in that position, and this is what I think scripture is doing, if I find myself in the position of being an authority, I have a tremendous calling in how I exercise that authority. And, Paul, and Jesus wants me and Paul wants me to take that authority and in a sense, lay it aside in a sense, and, and yes, lay it aside, but also steward it in such a way that I'm giving rise to voices. So I really resonated with what you said, Asher, where it's not enough to merely like, oh, okay, wife, you have the you have the mic for a minute, go ahead and say your piece, and then let's continue on with the program. And there I check that box, but actually do the hard work of making sure that voice is being heard, especially mm -hmm. in the church, making sure the voices that maybe are marginalized, maybe are less comfortable with speaking out that they do get that opportunity to be heard. I think that's, that there's lots of many examples of Jesus doing that in his ministry of like actually turning and, and again, turning around and giving the microphone to the woman with the issue with blood or the Seraphonician woman or, or the, even the oppressor, like the Gentile ruler that was hated by everybody. He's like, or the Gentile um, centurion who was hated by everybody turning and saying, wow, this guy has faith that I haven't seen in all of Israel. Jesus does this over and over again. And so that's what I think. I don't think that Paul is saying, no, there's just, there's no authority at all. There's no structure. He's honest about the realities we face in society. But he's saying, how are you going to steward that? What does it look like to steward this within the kingdom? And what it looks like for a husband who... I think Paul assumes we'll have authority. What it looks like for a husband to steward that is to love his wife, which is really crazy back then. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I guess one of the first questions I would have is why do people read Ephesians 5 and say that it's about who gets to make decisions? You know, it's about authority. First of all, the word authority is not found in that passage at all. Um, there's the word head, which is a really fun word. Um, 
because it's it's pretty unique in the sense in Greek and unlike in English, it doesn't connote, it doesn't necessarily like it's it, it's just literal head. It doesn't carry with it the innate meaning of authority. And I think in the context of Paul's writings, he talks about Christ as head. So let's start from who Christ is as head. It's not interchangeable with any other word for power or government or authority or king. I think it's a very specific word that in Colossians 1 says, you know, he's the head of the church, the beginning, the firstborn. He's literally the progenitor of the new covenant and what it means to be his church is to follow him to imitate him to be as he is everything that he demonstrated is what he wants us to be and so to me the the biblical meaning of the word kafala head is a really, like christ being head and us being the church is sort of an imitator uh an, an imitative relationship where christ is the initiator the new covenant he's initiator of this example of the the savior who dies on the cross against everything roman society would believe is even dignified and masculine and powerful dying on the cross is the exact opposite of everything that society valued because romans believed in the, the protecting the 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 purity of the male the masculine body it was about being impenetrable about having dignity and honor and yet christ who who is the most powerful you know who who has glorious took the way of the cross a way that is seen as the shameful way of a slave and so christ is that model for us to imitate and and so like to me headship is a relationship of him being the initiator of the new covenant and us being imitators of that, imitators of Christ carrying our cross. And so that's what I see in the writings of Paul as and in, in First Peter as well. Like Peter is literally like Christ died for you as an example. Mm. Likewise, wives. Likewise, husbands. Finally, love one another like brothers. I think that that, is a pretty uh, clear example of what it means, what the what these verses are talking about, and um, and and then we see in Christ sort of that agency. He had the power to decide. In John ten, it says, yeah. "Like I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again." And every one of us is born with the power to decide. We have that agency. Um, and so the way of the cross does involve that choice and that agency. Um, so Rebecca, I think, I think what I would see is that with, without overstating my case, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a scholar at that level, but that women didn't actually have that agency to lay down their lives. Men did. Men had authority. Men had power. Like Jesus said, or like Paul said in Philippians, he said, Jesus, although he had the right to be God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped at. And so Jesus is the head, and yet he lays that down. And so, too, he calls men to lay down their authority that society or biology would give them 
thus um, men take that initiative. And then the question that's left for women is, wait, so if men are laying down their lives, does this mean women get to rise up and exercise authority over men then? Are we starting a feminist rebellion? And that's why Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is being in the Lord. This is okay. It's okay to submit to your husbands, even though they're laying their lives down like Jesus, the head, laid his life down for you. Yes. So like the that passage is pretty amazing on so many levels. If you look at Greek. Uh, yes, or, Philippians okay. 2 is amazing. Yep. And basically, Ephesians 5 is kind of a reiteration of that. Mm-hmm. My takeaway from Ephesians 5 is he's he's looking at like, yes, what the kind of power that men had in society and what even defines masculinity. And he says, you be the ones. You, you initiate that. Because like you say, you know, women didn't have the choice to submit or not submit. It was it was legally what they had to do. They were basically their bodies didn't belong to them. Um, so what he's saying in, in, in Ephesians five is so remarkable in the sense of like every line of that contradicts what the Romans believed to be essential. Mm-hmm to masculinity. So say like, husbands love your wives as your own bodies. Well, women's bodies were considered inferior, mutilated bodies without dignitas, without honor. And so like for a man to consider his wife's body to and, and love as if it were his own body, that's unthinkable in that culture. And, um, and then it says, and then it calls them to lay down your life like Christ laid down your life. Uh, which is the way of the cross. Now we think the way that modern people frame it is this heroic mm-hmm. kind of like damsel in distress type of narrative where in the end you lay down your life, but really you're the hero and everyone looks up to you. The way of the cross is the way of, again, like shame and, and, and relinquishment of even, of even dignity. And to do that for a woman what even <laughs> yeah it's not considered to, something to go honorable back- in this like we have this this ethos we have this like from a um an english language arts perspective we have the tropes in literature of the man rescuing the woman um and i can't again i can't speak to ancient greek literature but it wasn't considered honorable to lay your white life down for a woman Especially not laying your life down in the in the manner of the cruciform death of Christ. Um, but to go back to your question earlier, what was that? Oh, okay. So I think that we have this ingrained assumption, and we get that from from teachers like Gothard, that authority is this thing that somehow we assume. Where is it in the Bible that if you obey? The person who who God has placed as authority, which which that very framework is actually an invention of Luther, the three estates um, of the household, government, and church, and we assume that that to obey that person, even if they are being abusive or even if they're doing something wrong, that somehow God will judge you as innocent and guiltless. But that is precisely uh, what 
the Nazi officials were saying at the Nuremberg trials. I was only following orders, right? They were saying that they were guiltless because all they did was obey. Can we make that assumption? And where in scripture do we get that assumption? Um, that God doesn't somehow see our actions as being act- like that we actually had the choice to not do something wrong or not. Uh, where I guess that, that that's, that's one of the questions I would have that we just assume because we've perhaps been taught that way, that kind of teaching has seeped in into our circles. And so, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think that you were operating from that, Drew. But it kind of did, kind of remind me a little bit of that kind of idea that you know God gives this person decision-making power, and you just you if you it's your job to obey that, and God holds that person responsible. I think if a if a lot of women uh, didn't have that kind of excuse that like. Yeah, you know, God's going to hold, I have no responsibility for my actions in this matter. God will hold the authority responsible. 100%. I I think, yeah. No, and I want to be clear, um, because I want to spell it out. There's a lot of of people who use language of biology to talk about gender roles and say like, oh, well, men are just, you know, less emotional than women. And, you know, Eve was more easily easily deceived than Adam. That's not what I'm speaking about. And I'm being very tentative here because I'm not a scientist. (laughs) Um, But as a general rule, if you think about a bell curve, most, the majority of men tend to be stronger than women. It's It's much more likely that a man will beat up a woman than a woman will beat up a man. Historically, men have been in positions of authority. And so wherever that's coming from, whether it's good or bad, right or wrong, I think Paul is pragmatically saying, well, this is the way it is. How do you steward that? And the way he wants us to steward it is by laying it down. Um, Asha, you asked about um, defining terms a little bit. And yeah, <laughs> just just in a tiny we're, nutshell. We're an hour into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. What were you going to say? We're, we're great educators, right, Rebecca? Um, <laughs> um, so, okay, now we'll tell you what we're talking about. <laughs> egalitarians would, um, hold that, that men and women are equal. The, some egalitarians would say interchangeable. There's no distinction between gender and gender is this like, that's actually, social... that's actually a misconception. I know. Though, <laughs> that's why I said some egalitarians, cause I have genuinely heard that, but generally they would say men can lead, women can lead in marriage and in church complementarians would say no they have roles that complement each other it's interesting that um initially it was egalitarians who developed the term complementarian to try and describe their term because they weren't saying that men and women are just you know identical widgets doing exactly the same thing but um the the more uh quote conservative which again isn't quite right either but the those who would look at traditional gender roles took it and said, no, no, men and women complement each other. Men are in leadership. Women are in submission. Men love. Women um, honor. And this is the way it works. E- even um, some really awesome people that I, I have utmost respect for would hold strongly to complementarianism and then say a third term people have heard, which is patriarchalism. Uh, Russell Moore, for example, would hold that 
really the best term for complementarian is patriarchy, but patriarchy is too loaded. So he soft pedals and he literally says that. Um, so patriarchy is, yeah, I've heard him say that is essentially a more hardcore version of it, of complementarianism. But the actual root meaning of the word complementarian in my mind would be that men and women are different. They complement each other and that's God made two different genders and we bring those differences to the kingdom, but it's descriptive, not prescriptive. And I think I would say I'm a descriptive complementarian while folks like John Piper or Bill Gothard would be a prescriptive complementarian. What do you think, Rebecca? Hmm. I, uh, yeah, the history of the word is that it was first used by egalitarian scholars to describe how, you know, men are men, women are women, and they're different. I think um, Keith Giles or Giles, uh, if I'm like, like there, the difference between the two views currently out there in writing would be that some believe that in equality of power. So they're called, um, I can't remember the word, but basically they, they believe in complementarity, but they believe that there should be, there should be an equal distribution of power. And then complementarians, complementarians claim that egalitarians don't believe in gender differences. That's not the case uh, because they came up with the word complementarity. But the, at the root of complementarianism, which I believe is a very specific ideology with very specific origins that is in the 80s of John Piper and Wayne Grudem, and therefore I don't, I don't use the word complementarian to describe myself because to me that's, that's John Piper and that's Wayne Grudem and that's Denver Statement, right? There's a historical entity, just like <laughs> I was just gonna say, just like Nazism was Hitler. But wow. then I, I think maybe that perhaps <laughs> is taking it, uh, you know. But but that's that's what that specific thing. Like Marxism is Marx. Complementarianism had a specific origin and a specific meaning. Um, I would probably say that I hold to neither of these views, and that like I believe in what's called cruciform complementarity um so complementarians uh would would generally their main signifying belief is in leadership and submission or authority and submission meaning that god made men to have authority over women and that and the entire definition of roles is basically who has power and who doesn't and they will soft pedal it. They will say it's it's actually very reciprocal. But yeah, they, <laughs> they will yeah. they will say it's entirely reciprocal because the man loves, and therefore any any kind of like power differentials or abuse does not really exist in that world. Not true complementarianism. And I would um, just, Drew would say something. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> I would just. Um, tie this something back to something you said at the beginning, Asher, that, you know, this is kind of a hot button topic and everybody's talking about it. If this was just like kind of an obscure discussion about, um, you know, what, 
what do we call a woman who's leading has a has a role of decision making in the church or i don't know if it was a debate about eschatology or something it would be like why do we have to worry about this so much but rebecca and i have both seen and i think a lot of your audience have seen this is a defining element of who a person is i mean the whole gender wars in the broader culture makes this clear but when you when you frame everything about who i am in terms of my gender it's it gets in your head and i've seen it in my own life i've seen it with my wife we've seen it in couples we've worked with mm -hmm. that's why it's important it's not just a fun you know dinner table debate this this can totally cripple a person's relationship with jesus and their their relationship with the church um we were talking so i'm gonna i'm gonna just push through for one more one more point it gets to this idea of genderizing um the fruits of the spirit and saying oh women are supposed to be gentle i remember my mom used to get a magazine called gentle spirit and um that that magazine fell apart when she ran away and had an affair with a guy um but it was this whole thing. The the late the, the author, author the, not the, your the, mom. <laughs> yes, to be clear. The the um magazine publisher. But it was this like gentleness is a distinctly feminine characteristic. And we hear this in Mother's Day sermons. It's like, but does that base basically we're saying that women have a corner on the fruits of the spirit. If you think through the fruits of the spirit and you're honestly trying to say, how do I grow how did I grow up hearing how these are these fruits of spirits are talked about. Uh, faithfulness might be a manly characteristic, maybe self-control, but most of them really are belong to women. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And that's just wrong. We have got to stop ascribing gender to characters of our save characteristics of our savior, who's our example. And that's why it's so important that we we break through and say, what did Jesus actually mean? Did he actually want us to define each other by gender and and limit it to that or is he poking at something deeper yeah i get what you're saying um so maybe i'll give a, a short like kind of like gender studies kind of pitch um so looking at these different views egalitarian complementarian i would say that i don't really agree with either of them because I, I so we've kind of like talked about it. We came up with this idea called cruciform complementarity, and what we're really trying to get at is that first of all, men and women were made in the image of God. In secular gender studies, there are two things: there's biology, which is sex, and then social constructed roles, which is gender. And gender consists of all the other aspects of being that are not biology. Um, there's this ideology that came out in the 18th century together with racial science. It's very much tied. It's called biological essentialism. Mm -hmm. And it's also um, dating back and has roots in Aristotle, who again created these tears like slaves were born slaves and free people were born free and women were born with lesser souls and lesser beings and men were born with higher souls and higher beings. And rulers rule and inferiors obey that and are subject. Um, so biological essentialism came out in the 19th century together with Darwinianism and just the idea that 
some races are born with certain characteristics, insert stereotypes, and then they, it's uh, race, gender, and class. And all these things they believe are tied to who you essentially are because you are born that way. Um, but as Christians looking at biological sex, looking at gender, what I think is the overarching message of scripture is number one, we were made in the image of God, male and female. And number two, our destiny is to be conformed to be the image of Christ. And that image is revealed in Christ on the cross, so the cru cruciform complementarity, meaning that whatever characteristics that are good, innate in all of us, it, whatever it is, it comes from God. It's a reflection of his nature. Um, we like the fruit of the spirit's a big one. A uh, few people quote James three, which is about the wisdom that is from above, and this is the wisdom that is from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruit. That's the way of the kingdom. That's the way of the cross. And then if you look at the way of that's valorized in society, which is the way of empire, then it's it's the wisdom of this earth which is what Jesus said, people who want the first seat at the table, people who are pushing to get power for themselves, the way of empire where the rulers lord it over others. Like that is the way of empire. Yet why is it valorized as this like masculine ideal? It's because in the ancient world, um, the leader Caesar, for example, was seen is the epitome of masculinity. And so everything, the empire is bound up in the person of Caesar and Caesar as this conquering, valiant, aggressive, domineering um, ideals made into the masculine ideal. Whereas we don't see empire in Christ. We don't see the way of the sword. We see the way of the cross. We don't see the wisdom of this earth, what the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. We see, we see the the fruit of the spirit and the wisdom um, from above. And so these, like, I think I don't consider myself like my study to be primarily about gender. I think it boils down to the end of the day, the separation of kingdoms. What is of the kingdom? versus what is of Satan, what's of empire. Um, and then the way, what I realized is that the way that we configure gender and the way we configure masculinity, the way that we have polarized and the ideals that we create are, are basically empire. It's taken from the ideals. Like, for example, uh, Putin and Russia, the kind of masculinity that's valorized is directly correlated to the idea of invasion and war and conquest. Mm -hmm. Same um, same with Caesar, same with Hitler, the kind of like he, re, he uh, his a theologian who is a big fan, like German nationalist, rewrote the Sermon on the Mount because it was too feminine. You know, blessed are the meek, you can't have that. So the Nazis rewrote the Sermon on the Mount, or at least a Nazi theologian did. It wasn't an official project of the Third, third Reich. Um, and, then, and then the Nazis valorized, again, a certain kind of masculinity that suited the needs of empire. 
And so are we framing, are we framing um, what it means to be male and female using the world's way of doing things, using the other kingdom's way of doing things? Or are we thinking about the way of cross, uh, the way of Christ, the way of the cross, the character of God? Uh, I think that is the fundamental question. Ultimately, what? Um, and then everything else kind of falls in place if we put Jesus first. Yeah. Ultimately, what you're mm-hmm. saying, Rebecca, if I can mansplain for a second, um, <laughs> ultimately, what I hear you saying is that the problem is, is that we're defining gender by who has the power. And that from the very beginning, if we're asking the question, who has the power, we're asking the wrong question because that's not what Jesus is concerned about. This has been good. Thank you guys for being willing to spend your Thursday evening as we're recording this. Um, yeah, I enjoyed it. Discussing this. And for for our audience, um, a lot of what Rebecca has shared specifically is is a part of a study and uh, an essay she's writing. I don't know if at some point you will publish that on the the Kingdom Outpost, but I really appreciate the the emphasis that I heard coming through several different times. That it's not about who gets the power. And I guess this is, I'm not sure that either of you said this, but would you say it's accurate to say it's its about how we use whatever whatever we found ourselves in, how we embody Jesus in that particular situation, or, or whether we embody Jesus in that particular situation? Exactly. Sometimes we hear that, well, it's not about who has the power, but that how we use it. Are we using it nicely? And we're taking one step further. It's not about using the power nicely. It's about following Jesus who took his power, left it in heaven, and died for us on a cross to show us a way to follow him. It's not, I wouldn't say it's not about power, but it's about a kingdom view of power. And there's so much to dig into and it's very, very exciting. And uh, it's just, I guess it's, it's just starting. It's we're really di- discovering what the kingdom means in a world that is very much shaped by empire, by the by a very satanic view of um, a very lustful satanic view of like a world where everything's for you to steal, kill, and destroy. <laughs> what is the kingdom? What is Jesus coming to bring life? What is the cross that puts to shame? the wisdom of this world and the power of this world. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Thank you for sharing. Again, as always, um, those who want to learn more from either about Drew and Rebecca or just some of their writing and podcasts. Um, Drew is host of That Jesus Podcast. Access accessible wherever you listen to podcasts. And um He's also involved with uh, the Kingdom Outpost. Rebecca is the primary editor <laughs> She's of the that head Kingdom of that Outpost. <laughs> <laughs> She's uh, is that the uh, KingdomOutpost.org? Or I think. Yeah. Yeah. One time, I think I said .com one time, and then I went and looked it up, and I was like, that wasn't it. So, um, dot, the KingdomOutpost.org. Uh, KingdomOutpost.org. KingdomOutpost.org. 
Well, one thing I like to say is like, the kingdom is not I, but we. If we want to be like the early Anabaptists, then like communal hermeneutics and conversations like this emerging from community versus from like one person being the ingenue. It's like, yeah, the kingdom is not I, but we. And about the conversations we have as a community. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, thank you guys for being willing to have a conversation like this publicly. Mm-hmm.